Welcome to Light on Conspiracies, the place where truth and love transcend the darkness. Your host, Peace Award-winning researcher, Ole Damagod. To listen to this full interview, just go to lightonconspiracies.com and subscribe. Hi, Ole. How's it going? How did, how did uh, they like that last thing we did this morning? I think they really liked it, but it's like, uh, do you know, I told you, she, she sounds a bit confused, but the end result is re- normally really, really good. They put a lot of effort into it, and uh, so, no, it went good, I think. And what, who was that guy's name you wrote that book about, You that Swedish guy? What was his name? Olaf Palme. Olaf Palmer. Palme. And what, what was his, uh, was he in the government? Oh, God, yeah, he was the Swedish prime minister. Oh, okay. I tell you, that that is, I mean, if you think JFK is mysterious and multilayered, that one is incredible. And most people haven't heard of it. And you you did a uh, video on it? No, I put uh, some 12 years of my life into it. Oh, my goodness. This is why I live in Spain. I lost two friends in Sweden as well, and uh, uh, no. So did, I, they, I, did they? Sorry. Did they threaten you over there? I had a visit did at they home. Threaten? Yeah. They, oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Do, do you know they? Uh, no, I had two friends who died who died uh, under mysterious circumstances, and then. Uh, uh, I had a visit at home as well, and at that point, you know, there was uh, I was absolutely unknown, and you know how vulnerable you are if you live on your own, well, just like you, more or less, and then, I mean, hit and run or whatever. I just saw this pattern of a lot of people dead around these different cases, and uh, so one day when I came home, three days in a row or in the same week, my motorbike had been moved locked but moved like 150 yards uh, maybe somebody tried to steal it or why did they why didn't they take it you know so and then um, my apartment uh, was uh, locked and i had all my stuff there but it was just a one room apartment and i had it uh, you know like pretty nice and clean and organized and so on and when i came home one day the door was locked when i came in i felt somebody somebody's been in here and uh, I saw that my bookshelves had been moved out. You know, the things had sort of moved to the right. Uh, all of it had moved to the right. And I went through my documents. Somebody had been there. But they made it very clear that they been had been there because, like, my toothbrush was among the cutlery in the kitchen. Uh, there was one photo from uh, where the crime scene when he was killed where they put it underneath the bathtub in the in the... Uh, what do you call it, the drain, uh, but it was, they poured water over it, so the colored had dissolved, so it looked like blood, blood had been running over it, and uh, and then left and just locked the door again, so. Yeah, they were just trying to leave a message that we can get you anytime we want, and just scare, that was a scare thing, like, shut up and stop investigating. That is exactly how I interpreted it as well, and at that time, you you know, I was living on my own, out in a suburb, suburb in the outskirts of Stockholm, um, 
just in a in an area with lots of losers and drunks and so I just felt I could so easily disappear here you know so I just felt it's uh, if I want to make a difference I need to to get out and then so me and my girlfriend we decided uh, because of that but also because none of us really fitted into Sweden I, I'm, I'm Danish I was born in Denmark but lived many years in Sweden and she never really felt at home there either so we sat down with an, a map and we just like I asked where what do you want and she said I want the sea I said I want mountains so instead of us getting into a conflict we said okay let's find a place where the sea and mountains meet and then we found this little island of Mallorca so two months later we would we had moved we just put uh, her two kids in the car and just packed it with everything and left started from absolute scratch zero money and uh, couldn't speak the language and just started from scratch and then uh, in Spain uh, I then finished the book so I had it uh, everything was finished 2001 but I didn't get it published or I published it myself in 2012 Wow so, well um, I'm at noon today I, uh, my time mountain time I have to get off the phone because I was just on the phone with Brindy She's John B. Wells' wife, and she's from Denmark, too. Is she Danish? I didn't know that. Yeah, she is. I Because I told her, I said, well, we had an interview today with Oli Domagard. She goes, oh, yeah, we know him. And uh, she goes, I'm Danish, too. And I said, oh, okay. Well, um, I said, I have another interview with Ole and uh, uh, a gentleman. And then after that, it, it ends at at noon and then we've only got 30 minutes time before uh john b wells gets on because they pre-record their stuff too so yeah um but she says yeah i'm from dane uh i'm dane too i had no idea yeah you know she 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 almost died very recently what Uh, happened it it was uh john b was uh doing an interview with me and right in the middle he's he got a message and he just went totally pale and he said, listen, I'm very sorry, I, I need to leave. And she, he went straight to the hospital and there was something very serious. I can't remember. She told me about it, uh, something that looked very threatening. And then the, the doctor said, we need to operate very urgently. And they were praying and stuff like that. And then it disappeared. It, like they see it as a total miracle. So do I. I mean, like uh, the doctors can't explain how... Whatever it was disappeared, but it uh, just went away like boom. So they've been extremely happy lately because of her health thing. So. Yeah. But listen, uh, Cody, uh, I just spoke to Fetzer and he had to postpone the whole thing. So okay. when is your next interview? It's not till uh, noon today, so at Mountain Time. Right now it is it's a quarter after 10 mountain time so i've got uh, an hour and 45 minutes uh free time now uh so um i'm sorry with jim was sick huh no he wasn't sick it's just that he totally messed up uh, you know sometimes okay. you get confused with the time zones and the time and stuff but would it be okay with you cody if if we just continue uh 
um, right. maybe Operation Slammer or where, whatever area you want to go into. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, um, your connection uh, over there this morning in uh, the Netherlands was breaking up, but right now it's very clear and very strong, so we got a good connection. It was in the middle of the interview when, when I started talking, suddenly the Skype just went uh, blocked. You know, I, I couldn't uh, connect, but thank God you were still connected. I could hear that uh, you were saying, but I couldn't touch the buttons. I couldn't do anything, so that's, uh, think, that's what happened. Do you, do you think they were interfering with it electronically, or it was just a technical problem? Do you know, I've, so many times when I've done interviews, when I come to a certain point when I start name, naming names, boom, it locks down. And so some, <laughs> some, sometimes it's even I speak directly to the people who are doing it, you know, saying, listen, guys, please understand you're shooting yourself in the foot. We are here trying to save all of us, you know, to get out of this mess. And just because you're getting well paid at this point, doesn't mean that what you're doing is right. So really look in yourself in the mirror, feel some shame and get a life, you know, stop messing with us because it's just ridiculous. And then often it stops. Right, but right. But I've had like interviews where I've been shut down like 24 times, but we, we just connected again, connected again, connect. So it's, uh, it's like surfing. There's another wave. Okay, take that one. Another <laughs> wave. Take that one. This, That's this, a good way to put it because you don't get excited and you don't get confrontational because when you do that, you give your energy to the enemy. That is it. I always avoid that. You know, I really choose my wars. And uh, this is also why I, I try not to feel anger or hate. Really, I don't. Uh, and these things because I know if I go into these areas, I lose. I lose myself. I lose my power. And uh, so it's up to them. But also what I've noticed is that uh, it's like a tug of war. You know, they throw out the, the rope to you, and if you pick it up, you, you're lost. You know, because they, uh, they just want you in conflict. And if you don't pick it up, well, it's hard for them to do anything. And so yeah. I, have, I have no idea if, if they're messing. I mean, and then again... Who cares? As long as the result is fine, I don't care. You know, okay, fine, shut me down. I'll just connect again, shut me down. Okay, I'll just connect again, shut me down. Okay, I'll just connect again. And in the meantime, I'll, I'll eat some cornflakes and enjoy myself. And, to, you know, some instead of getting paranoid or afraid and, oh, my God, they're watching me or whatever. Exactly. It, it cripples your mind, that fear. That's what they want to do. They don't care how they do it as long as they get you scared. And this is exactly why I refuse to live in fear. You know, I, yeah. I, I have my address on the website. I, you know, I'm not hiding. I don't use encryption um, and so on. If they want me, I'm here. But yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing the same thing. I'm, I'm in my home. I've had this place 26 years, and I'm, I've got my address and all my stuff. And we're not doing anything illegal. I, I'm not. You're not. I'm, I'm quoting the Intelligence Identities Protection Act. We are not uh, divulging any uh, top secret names or breaking any laws. All we're doing is trying to find the truth. And why is that a, cri a crime or a, uh, you know, they hate crime us because we're just trying to find the truth. And 
try to stop us. I mean, yeah. the truth will still be the truth, even if we go away or whatever. And this is what I love when, when you were saying about this uh, with the heart uh, and the guilt. And the thing is, it, it will not leave them alone. Sooner or yeah. later, this guilt will eat them from the inside. And, and, uh, and, and that's right, because when you do any kind of black ops or anything, and, and you're mean to people, the karma from that, uh, a lot of people don't believe in karma, and I tell them, no, no, no. Karma, the spiritual laws of creation and karma are absolutely real, and they supersede man-made law. Mm. Yeah, that's once again why I try to live a life in love, you know, because I I don't want it. I don't want the repercussions of karma of bad things and it also makes life so much more fun and enjoyable so anyway listen cody i really want to say that i i i very much appreciate having met you and being in touch with you and i think that uh, together we can make amazing things yes it's gonna it'll all come together we're just gonna flow and stay focused on the mission at hand, not all the lower stuff, you know, and, and just stay on focusing the light and bringing the truth, and uh, the rest of it will come downstream. Hallelujah, baby, to that. But, uh, Cody, one thing with Black Ops, would you, would you mind just telling me when you got sort of like a... Uh, I know that when I spoke to I'm with Chip and so on, when we've been talking about false flags and so, he says, you know, for many of these people, it's just another day at the office. They say bye bye to the wife, go to the office, and instead of preparing sort of a marketing campaign for Coca-Cola, it's a marketing campaign for terror. And it's like they say, nothing personal, it's just business as usual, but in such a sinister way. Is what is your experience and how did you get yourself into this? How, how, did it sort of creep in on you slowly? What the, the level of, of hardcore uh, rough stuff or, or, or how, how did you sort of, uh, how should I say, accustomize yourself to it? Acclimate, yeah. So Acclimate. Are, is, this, is this being recorded now? Yeah. If you want okay, to, yeah. good, good. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. I want it to be recorded, so I won't have to repeat a bunch of this stuff later. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, when you're a uh, civilian in whatever country you're in, um, you always are uh, socialized uh, and educated uh, to the norms and the biases in that, in that society. They call it a process of socialization. And you go through school, the school system, and, um, you know, you, you fit in, blend in with the society pretty good. Uh, but when it comes to black ops, they don't teach any of that stuff in school. Um, people's only contact with it is through the media and, and uh, movies and stuff. But when you actually get into the black ops world, you have to start getting some kind of training. And um, oftentimes that training exceeds your cognitive dissonance threshold, which means when you start, opening up to this big paradigm in the black ops world uh, it's very 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 different from what you were raised uh, in almost any country um, and so you have to learn to adjust and there's a period of adjustment 
and as your knowledge base expands and you learn more and more things, um, then uh, your your consciousness paradigm is changed, and uh, you start becoming more and more um, devious, more and more wicked. Um, your trust in things uh, is destroyed. Everything appears to be an illusion because uh, you don't know what to trust. You don't know if you're going to be duped or not. And then that leads to the mindset for professional uh, intelligence assets. Like uh, Chip Tatum was talking about, you know, they, the guys that are in the CIA, for instance, a long time, they keep going back and forth. They see all of this stuff, um, and it, it changes you. Um, you know, white is black and black is white. Uh, you learn to look at the world completely different, differently than the, par- the old paradigm you were raised under. And so that's why oftentimes, you know, people, they don't tell their families. I never told any of my family. First of all, I didn't want them to get killed or kidnapped. And so uh, silence is protection in that field. Um, So it's a whole different way of looking at things. Like when I wrote this book, Choosing the Light, Dark Secrets of the Oklahoma City Bombing, I had it set up. And I knew that if I took it like a normal person in a normal society and you take it to a publisher first, um, then do the interviews later, I knew if I did that, that, uh, you know, CIA would get wind of it and it would probably be shut down and then I'd have a car accident or something and nobody would ever hear of it. So you have to look at things differently and uh, do everything the opposite. So we do the interviews first and then get the book out later. And that way you're protected. But if you put the book out first, you're not protected because they have the publishing companies heavily infiltrated. And so if you're going to speak truth to power, you have to be careful how you do it. And you have to wait for the right time to do it like we're doing now. We're blending all this in with with the Trump indictments and this wave of light going around the world So, uh, and uh, possible war in North Korea and so forth. So if you blend it and get it out the right time, you'll be protected. If you don't, you could get killed. Uh, so, yeah, it's a whole different paradigm, a whole different way of adjusting your mind, and you have to take it in increments because if you do it too fast, your mind will blank out, your mind will shut down. It's too different in the black ops world than it is in the regular world. And then you have a spin-off emotional consequences. Um, you know, do, you get, do you get desensitized uh, over time sort of, sort of stepwise into this whole thing? Yeah, you you can get desensitized emotionally. Um, You know, when you're training on shooting at targets, for instance, instead of shooting at a a round target, you may put up a silhouette of a man or something, and then you or you may put up a color picture of a terrorist or some uh, jihadi member. And so, what you're shooting at in the target is 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 like a real life picture full color, everything, so that when you actually uh, do have to do it in the real world, you've desensitized your mind, and the the paper-colored target's almost identical to the actual target. And there is a desensitization process um, that occurs. Most operatives that are seasoned operatives have learned to just turn that side of their mind off like a light switch. You have to turn off your morality and your dignity and your human compassion, and you have to become blank, just blank in your mind, 
um, almost like a meditative state because when operations are conducted and there's bombings and machine gunnings and violence, it all happens so fast. You don't have time for emotions. It's, it's so quick. It's so fast that what you do is you resort to your training. You don't even have time to think. Um, it's faster than thought almost. You just have to complete your mission, do what you got to do, and then later on, if if you're still alive, um, then you can worry about the emotional blowback and all the other lower things. So it's a process of training your mind in combat to um, almost blank out the Japanese warriors, the samurai warriors. Um, in feudal Japan, they called this, their word was mushin, and that, that means uh, no mind. It means blankness of mind. Because if you allow fear, when two people got razor-sharp swords and they're coming at you, uh, there's imminent death threat. You have to have that blankness and stillness in your mind because that's where you're most powerful. If your mind is crippled by fear, then your reactions are slower and uh, you can't uh, perform at your peak. Do you know there's so many of these things that you talk about that are so connected to very honorable, pure, clean martial art uh, uh, things as well with high morality. And here we're talking in a totally different area, but it's like the same techniques being used. Is that a correct observation? Yes. Um, like Sun Tzu said in the Art of War, the classic Chinese uh, text, um, you know, the greatest warrior wins without fighting. And what that means is you can use strategy and tactics and substitute that for physical violence. And the greatest warrior is a master of strategy and tactics and using his mind rather than weapons. And so oftentimes when we were given an operation, we just had an objective, okay? We want you to do this or that. And the principals would pay us if we completed the operation and they liked it with a minimal amount of blowback. If we did things right, they might give us a big bonus. But um, we had to keep things quiet. And um, oftentimes when we were given free reign on an operation, I could use those uh, ideas of strategy and tactics and avoid violence. I always tried to avoid violence. That's why I didn't want to work for the CIA because here they are giving you a jobs and operation, and then they tell you how to do them, and they have constant oversight. You've always got a monkey on your back watching you. And what I wanted to do was conduct operations, get the money, but I found ways to do them without violence. I always tried my hardest to use strategy and tactics in the mind rather than physical violence. Now, there's some cases where that can't, it's not possible. Um, I'll give you an example. If Let's say there's a woman with a, a Bakra, and they're at the Gaza uh, checkpoint there um, between Israel, the Israeli uh, uh, checkpoint between at the Gaza Strip between Palestine and Israel, and there's hundreds of people that cross that checkpoint every day, and they watch it real close, and, and she's got her bucker covering her face and her black robe, and she's got two kids, one in each hand, and uh, she she lets go of one of the children's hands, and she reaches up under her uh, robe. And your job is to guard, uh, from a sniping position, your, your job is to guard that checkpoint. 
Well, if you're watching this woman through your scope and she reaches up, up under her robe, at that point you don't know if she's reaching to pull a a detonator and she's got a suicide vest or she might just be reaching up to scratch her stomach. And so you have to make a split decision right then with the crosshairs on her because if you don't shoot her and she detonates that, she's going to kill the children and hundreds of people at the checkpoint. And if she's just scratching and she's not an, an insurgent, then you would have shot a woman, a, a mother right in front of her two children. So either way you go, it's a bad deal. But that's the kind of operational things that occur out in the field when, when you have these ops. Um, sometimes you have to make a split decision. Uh, you don't have time to sit and weigh things. And uh, hopefully you make the right one. Sometimes you don't. But that's where you have to have mental fortitude and courage to um, accept the consequences. Because all you can do is your best. We tried to operate at the highest level without using violence, but still accomplish whatever the objective was. But sometimes that was unavoidable. There's just no way to do it. Um, but at least we tried. And then when you look back psychologically years later and you think, wow, I did have to shoot that woman, um, and it's it's a bad thing to shoot a woman in front of her two children. That's horrible. However, by doing that one act of lesser evil, we stopped her from detonating and killing hundreds and hundreds of other people. So you commit a, a crime of evil to stop a much bigger crime of evil. And we can argue the morality of all this stuff uh, all day long, but if you get paid for guarding a checkpoint or you get paid for guarding people, then you have to uh, accept that sometimes violence is necessary. There's just no way around it. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Could you tell us a little bit about, uh, I know that you were talking about uh, in another interview about double agents, triple agents, uh, wet operations and so on. Could you help us to understand these terms a little bit better? How, how is it possibly be possible to be a triple agent, for instance? You've been listening to the first hour of A Light on Conspiracies podcast. To access the second hour of this and all podcasts, please visit lightonconspiracies.com and get a membership for the price of a cup of coffee. Now, back to the show. Okay, well, um, all right, let's say that you're a Russian... Uh, you're in the Navy or something, and then they, the KGB pulls you out, and they say, we want to make you an agent, and we want you to pose um, over in England and go to, to London, and we want you to try to meet MI6 agents and stuff at parties at the embassy, and your job is to be an agent for us. You're going to be meeting other agents, but your job is to turn them, befriend them and turn them, and get intelligence from them, okay? So you're a regular agent, and you go to London, and you're over there at embassy parties or whatever, and you're meeting all these guys trying to develop contacts, and you go to turn to some of them, but instead they turn you. So now 
you were an agent for the KGB, but now you've been turned by MI6, so now you're a double agent because you're working for MI6, uh, really, but you you are still reporting back to your original intelligence agency, which was the KGB. So that's an example of a double agent. And a triple agent is someone, these are very rare, by the way, um, but they do exist. A triple agent in that case would be a guy who began working for the KGB and his job was to go to London and then um, turn agents, but instead he was turned. And then after he was turned, he went back, and then he went back to the KGB and he decided his patriotism took over for whatever reason, and then he decided to turn again against the, the MI6. So that's a triple agent, and those, like I said, are rare, but um, they do occur. And um, most of the time you see the double agents, and they're, they're usually weeded out, like James Angleton, the uh, CI counterintelligence uh, officer we talked about earlier. Um, they were they were trying to weed out a lot of Soviet moles. That was the height of the Cold War. There was a lot of Russian spies, a lot of um, CI spies. There was a lot of doubles. And they were trying to figure it all out. And uh, if you know, if you get caught in that game, you're generally executed uh, or uh, poisoned or something like that. Because it's not only the intelligence agency that wants to kill you or shut you up; it's your other operatives. If the other guys in the field that are with you uh, find out that you're actually selling secrets, they'll usually kill you anyway. And sometimes the intelligence agency that originally hired you won't even know it because they won't tell anyone. They'll just figure out that you're a double agent and arrange an accident, and then so nobody knows really what happened. So it's a dangerous game, and it the only premium there is trust. It's the most important thing that you have. It's trust, and that's all it comes down to. And people's lives hinge on it. Who do you trust? Who can you trust? And people say, well, you should never trust, you know, trust no one. Well, what if you're wounded? What if you have gangrene in your leg somewhere and you're off in a sewer in Budapest somewhere? Who are you going to trust? You're going to have to, at some point, trust someone. That's a problem. And so it's a very delicate, tricky game. And the people that play it, um, some of them make it and some of them don't. That's why Langley has all those stars when you first go in the headquarters there. They have the wall you know, with the little stars. They have just a, a, a date. 1956, 1960, whatever, and the agents that died during that year, they get a star. There's no name, no rank, no nothing, just a star. That means an officer or asset or agent died out in the field. So trust is the big game. But at the same time, as it's built on trust, you can't really trust anyone, can you? Well, Sometimes you may be forced to. You may not want to, but, you know, an example is over in Afghanistan, for instance. Let's say you get uh, caught somewhere, you're out of ammo and everything, and the Taliban is chasing you. Um, there may be a villager or someone who is a local peasant, and you're wounded, and you're in bad shape. And they don't even speak the same language as you, and yet they offer you a helping hand, and they hide you. And then you come to find out later that that peasant's family was beheaded or killed by the Taliban, and they hate the Taliban. And so that's why they're helping you.
But at that point, you don't know whether to trust them or not. You don't know if they're Taliban. You don't know who they are. All you know is that you're sick and you're almost dead, and that if something doesn't happen, you're going to die. So you're forced at that point to um, to trust somebody. And hopefully your decision's good and you make it out alive. If you trust the wrong person, you you, you won't make it out. But what I mean is uh, your your other colleagues in the same business, these people where it also is a matter of trust, at the same time, these are the people that can kill you as well. Exactly. The ones you trust the most are the ones that can hurt you the most. And we've had situations where we've had trusted operatives work with us for years and years, and then something happened and they changed. They flipped. They were turned by an intelligence agency or they they were became drug addicts and uh, you could no longer be trusted or somebody bribed them or whatever. There's all the, the crisscrosses, we call them, or trick bags. It's a, a trick bag is something where you think you know what's going on and you think you know who you can trust in and up and then you find out that the persons that you trusted the most were actually working against you and uh we call that a trick bag so um it, it, yeah trust is a big thing and it, it comes and goes it's fleeting sometimes you have it sometimes you don't you can have it for 10 years with someone and then in uh, five minutes time it can all change today's trusted spouse can become tomorrow's state witness Scary, scary area. Yeah, and that's why it pays to develop your spiritual power. The best agents I know, they are adept spiritually. They they can they're uh, almost like psychics where they can feel, um, they can judge people's intents. A lot of agents are trained in uh, how to uh, tell the physiological twitches and signs of someone lying, so you know if someone's lying. Um, they have a sixth sense capability, that eerie feeling that, you know, you're going along and maybe there's an assassin hiding in a garbage can down an alley and they just get a weird feeling that something strange is there and the hackles go up on the back of their neck and then they take another route and uh, they um, thwart the assassination attempt. So you almost get like a higher level, a sixth sense feeling. Um which, in my case, it's kept me alive over and over and over. Uh, there's been times when uh, we were on and up, and uh, we did not know it at the time, but there was an intelligence leak, and a sniper team was set up waiting for us. And when we started to go out the door, my hand would just stop. I had this strange feeling that, it was a very dark, dreadful feeling, like, don't go out that door. And so we would go out an alternate route through a window or down down a, a staircase or whatever. Later on, after action reports, would find out that, uh, you know, something happened and there was a sniper team there. Now, a lot of the men that worked with us, they didn't believe in all that, but we dem I demonstrated it over and over in the field. So it's a higher power, and it's the only reason I'm alive. Because when you get knocked like that, you can't trust anybody, just like you said. And uh, things can happen real fast. You can be double-crossed. You can take a job from someone and thinking they're a good person, and it turns out they're a double agent. And the whole thing's a setup for some, some other op. And so it gets real scary. Uh, you just have to follow with what you feel. And if you're going to step on a tripwire or booby trap, uh, you'll die. 
But if you have that sixth sense feeling where you can kind of know there's a presence, um, that is the thing that really saves you. So after you survive operations for a while, you kind of start developing this this sixth sense, this this feeling uh, capability um, to tell if someone's lying, to tell if your operatives have been flipped or whatever it is. Um, it's a very fine line between awareness and paranoia. There's a very fine line between patriotism and treason. There's I a very a... fine line between life and death. You have lived one extreme life, I must say. Cody, <laughs> yeah, I, I made it. You did, you did. It's absolutely amazing that you're still around. I have a friend who's, uh, he was a police officer in, in Sweden for 20 odd years. He was, um, his main task was uh, to work um, against the mafia. And, but also he was, uh, you know, investigating so many different crimes. And he told me that every single time that he uh, interrogated a witness that had been the victim of some kind of crime, they had some feeling, some sense saying to them, you know, don't go into that elevator with that man or don't walk through that door or don't. And they just neglected it and did it anyway. But he said every single individual that he interviewed over during all of these years had this feeling before so yeah i i think what it seems like it's something we all have but that you really learned yourself to be aware of it and fine-tune it yeah in uh the martial arts we studied in japan and stuff after you study so long you develop what's called a sixth sense and you know one way to train with that is you put on a blindfold and you have an uke or partner and he practices punching at you very slowly. This is just practice. They're not trying to hurt anyone. But when he moves to punch you, you have to feel it. You can't see it. And then he goes ahead and makes a little contact with you. And after you begin, it's kind of like a blind person. When when they lose their eyesight, then the other sight, like the uh, the other senses, like ears and smell, they get very much more sensitive. And so you can train your mind to use this sixth sense. And you have to practice, and they have techniques and stuff. And some of the more advanced students can, can fight uh, one or two or even three opponents while they're blindfolded. And I know that sounds difficult, but after years of years of training and strict meditation where you can hold that that clear state in your mind of mushing, that that absolute blankness. And in that blankness and in that silence of your mind, then you become very tuned in to all the little senses. You can hear their foot sliding on the floor. You can hear their, their clothes. When they go to make a move, you can hear the clothes. Um, you can feel the energy. And I know it sounds very esoteric, but if you train in it long enough, you can do it. Now, how are you going to fight in the dark? What are you going to do if you have to get in a fight when it's pitch black and you can't see? So that's a way to train in that for that kind of circumstance. And you're right. The, all the operators I know, the, like Navy SEAL guys, uh, you know, and those guys are great warriors, um, the SAS in, in Britain, every, all those guys train, 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 and after years and years and years, 
their minds get fine-tuned. And uh, a lot of the guys that stay alive out in, uh, in real combat in the field, they have that sixth sense. This friend of mine that I'm talking about, his name is Corny Anderson, and uh, he was actually, uh, he ended up in a really bad situation because he exposed uh, some major corruption connected to the mafia in Stockholm. And uh, so they they set him up and he went to a fake trial, you know, where they were trying to destroy him. But instead he managed to get out and then his uh, boss said, listen, it's time for you to do something else, otherwise they will mess you up totally. So he, he was paid to go and get an Apache tracker education. So he went to the Apache tribe and uh, was trained in the old uh, tracker science. And now I tell you, he is amazing. And it's so much with where he uses all the senses. There's a lot. I've, I've uh, done workshops with him and so on. There's a lot of it blindfolded and you know out in the forest uh, more or less running in, in between trees and so on without hitting them or or just standing and just feeling just become one with everything and it's really interesting and this guy can i would he claims himself that he's better than uh, the police uh, what he called these these sniffer dogs uh, the canine patrols that he can he can feel the smell of a person up to 50 yards it's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, the yeah, human... that, that, yeah. That's the proximity sense you're talking about, uh, where you train the mind to feel. It's like uh, you know the body sleeps when you're sleeping, but the mind never sleeps. Um, there's a way you can train the higher levels of consciousness um, in your mind. Uh, what they call extrasensory perception. That's why the CIA was. And the KGB and all the intel agencies were all experimenting with the Pandora box of the mind control stuff. Um, they wanted to have the keys to this power, this this uh, spiritual awareness, psychic presence, extrasensory perception. Um, they were trying to make super soldiers and various things. And so the KGB had all their own mind control programs related to this. So did the, uh, the CIA here and you know, we had a space race between the Russians and the Americans with Sputnik and everything, and then they had a nuclear arms race. But what a lot of people don't know, between the two countries, Russia and America, the two superpowers after World War II, they also had a mind control race. There was also a race to tap into this very thing you're talking about um, with the higher aspects of mind and consciousness. And this is the point where a physical warrior becomes a spiritual warrior. And the ancient arts in uh, Japan and China, in, in the martial arts schools, um, that's where the warrior sage came out, where they're, you know, half hit man and half monk. You know, they're half spiritual and then half physical. That's where this kind of lineage was developed from. But... There are untapped powers in the human mind. Our science does not understand all of that, okay? But there are old uh, methods like the Apache tracking you're talking about uh, and ways to, to help promote this sixth sense. And so those operators that are like that, I'll give you one example. This is a good, uh, a good example. I had a friend, his name is Tucker. 
and he was a sniper for the U.S. Army in Vietnam. And on his first tour, what they would do is they would sit along these jungle, jungle trails at night, and he would get up in a tree facing the trail, and he had night vision equipment and a sniper rifle. Well, the rest of the platoon would, would lay in the bushes uh, and the jungle along the side of the trail, and they would set up Claymore mines and M60 machine guns and all kinds of stuff. Then they would wait, and at night the VC would come down through there. And he said that when he, his job was to take the point man out, which was the very first one, and then once he shot the point man, then the other uh, people would open up with the claymores and everything along the side and then kill them all in mass. And he said that time after time when he first started, those Viet Cong were so tuned to the jungle, they lived there. Um, they were so tuned to that jungle. When he took the safety off and was fixing the fire, um, and he put the intent out of his mind, you know, okay, three more steps and I'm going to kill you, you know. He said those VC would stop and then look up at him, and it freaked him out. He thought, I didn't make a sound. I didn't make a move. How did they know I was in this tree? And so he went back to the Lakota tribe. We, we take uh, Sundance at uh, Standing Rock Reservation, and they have an old warrior technique. It's called shape-shifting, where you turn yourself in mentally into a, an animal like a snake, and he used what they call snake medicine. So instead of using the intent of his mind and thinking, I'm going to kill you, he just pretended like he was a snake in a tree, and his mind was blank and calm, and then he would pull the trigger, and they wouldn't feel him. And that's a true story. He told me that story out of his mouth. He said, that's how I got to be a good sniper. It's not just shooting a weapon and being good with shooting a weapon. It's being good at quieting your mind. One time I was going to Paris, <clears throat> I was, it was after the Bataclan massacre and uh, all of these different cafe shootings. And, and after looking into it, I was very aware of that this was uh, not a terror attack, absolutely not, but inside state-sponsored terrorism carried out by special forces, uh, the, the Mossad CAA MI6, uh, part of this whole operation. And uh, so I was, I was feeling quite uncomfortable going there. I, I really don't like crossing borders doing the things I do because it's people in uniform that I fear, not uh, so-called terrorists or Harley Davidson or whatever. It's the people in uniform. But uh, before I left, um, I had a friend here who, who made a ceremony and, and blew tobacco, holy tobacco smoke over my head and stuff like that and said, now you're invisible, so don't worry. And... I don't know if I was invisible, but I walked straight through, uh, you know, like there were these police uh, blockages and there were passport controls and stuff. I, I more or less walked straight through. It was like they didn't see me. And I just thought uh, really, really interesting. Yeah, there, there is a spiritual component to any kind of uh, activity. See, we're basically mind, body, and spirit. And... Uh, like the Army Rangers, they'll train the body, and you do so many push-ups and sit-ups. I used to run five miles. I'd get up in the morning and run five miles, and then we would train in martial arts uh, twice, uh, two dojos, and we shot. We'd practice on the shooting range on our downtime, so we were always practicing um, hand-to-hand combat, knife techniques, 
um, all of this stuff. It's not that we wanted to use those techniques, um, but if we needed them, we had them. Because, oh, like the best bodyguards make the best assassins. And the best assassins make the best bodyguards. Because if you're an assassin and you learn that art, then when you turn it over to being a bodyguard to protect people, then you know all the tricks of an assassin and you know how to protect from it. So they're like two mirrors of the same thing. But the mind uh, is always the best weapon. They used to ask me, uh, like in Nicaragua, Cody, what are you going to take down there on this off in Nicaragua? And I would say, nothing. They go, what kind of gun are you going to take? What kind of surprise? I'd say, nothing. And they go, what do you mean? I said, the only thing I'm taking is the knowledge and training in my mind. When we get down there to Nicaragua, it's full of guns. It's you get down to Nicaragua, it's full of edible plants in the, in the jungle. You have to know which ones to eat. If you eat the wrong ones, you'll be poisoned. So the only thing I'm taking is my mind and my knowledge. That's all you need. Any country you go in, it's full of food and guns and all the other stuff. And so the high level of training becomes the mind, and it's mind, body, and spirit. And when I was in Japan, we trained in this... Uh, old style of martial arts, uh, it was, um, we called it San Mitsu Triple Secret Energy Channeling. That's where you took mind, body, and spirit, and you aligned them all together. And when you learn the spiritual com components of being a warrior, combined with the physical components, you know, running, push-ups, jumping, uh, lifting weights, um, and then the mental discipline of meditation and keeping your mind still, even though you're afraid and you're in combat and you're scared to death, you don't let that fear rise up. That's how I was able to do what I am today here, like I'm doing. You can uh, discipline the mind, discipline the body, and discipline the spirit. And when you put them all three together, it makes a three-pronged uh, weapon that's very, very powerful. You're at the height of your power if you can balance those three aspects of the human being. So we study spiritual science. We study uh, all the physical science, how to shoot, how to snipe how to fight, uh, you know, what to eat, how to survive, um, how to escape, um, everything. And I had a, the Vietnam guys train me. Some of them had been captured and, and escaped, so, and they were just fresh out of a war with the Viet Cong. It was a very ugly insurgent war, and they were highly trained. They trained me all kinds of things straight from the jungles of Vietnam. We didn't sit in a classroom we didn't read a bunch of books at Langley or go to the farm and, and study stuff. Uh, we got the straight battlefield techniques that were tested and proven in the, in the real-time battlefield. And so if you're going to stay alive in an op, um, you have to have, know all that stuff, and then you have to have the strategy and tactic to know exactly when to use it. There's times when you want to engage your enemy and times when you want to hide from your enemy. And so I was really good. Uh, one of my handlers told me, he said, the thing we like about you is you can get these jobs done. And um, you can get them done without blowback. As a general rule, we messed up some stuff. But he says we like you because you, you're like a, a light switch. You're not just on or off. You know how to turn it just enough, you know, use just enough force to get the job done, and then you can back off. And uh, so it's a very delicate thing. 
and uh, each man has to do what he what he can do. And I know that these things work for me, and I'm still alive. So, um, but yeah, there's there's a big component to that spiritual stuff you're saying, Olay, like that guy making you invisible. Um, some of that stuff, uh, while we don't understand it in our science, and it's highly esoteric, it's still real. What I felt was at least it gave me a sense of fearlessness, and I think that as well was part of of uh, me just walking straight through. I don't know what it was, but it just uh, I, it just felt very good. Yep, um, that's why you know when you go out on an op, you want to be as a hundred percent. You got to do your very best. It doesn't ensure you're going to be alive. But you want to be in the best shape you can. You want your mind as clear as possible. You know, we never got drunk or used drugs or any of that. When we were operational, we were always 100%. You know, uh, sharp, clear mind, um, tight, fit body, um, and then the spirit calm and open and always feeling, always knowing, always watching at a very high level of perception. Every little detail, um, watching every little thing, um, but being one with it at the same time. But the, what you're describing, I mean, it is uh, a war art, but it sounds very much like this could be used in a fantastic way in normal life as well. Absolutely. It's a, skill, you... it's, it's a skill set of blending the mind-body-spirit. Um, some people say mind-body-spirit emotions. Um, but it, when you when you blend that together, then you can get to the height of your power. And that's what I'm doing right now with these interviews. Uh, I, I, sometimes I'm, I'm up for 12, 14 hours at a time. I get really tired. We're doing four and five interviews a day. And I try to keep my mind sharp and remember all these dates and times and all the different details. But um, I'm doing it right now. I'm keeping my mind and my body and my spirit together. I'm also feeling around this house. I'm talking about high-level CIA stuff, and I might something might happen to me. So I'm also, at the same time, feeling with my proximity sense around the structure to see if there's any ill intent or there's anyone setting up on me or they're fixing to kick my door in. And so this is what's kept me alive, and it works. But I took a lot, I trained in martial arts for over 20 years. We did a lot of meditation, a lot of training. Uh, and so I've got to a, a point after many, many years of practice where I can actually employ these things I'm talking about. That's why I'm still alive. Yeah. I saw a, a sixth uh, grade, uh, the sixth Anvelt uh, grade, his, uh, his name was... Uh... Tomito, I think, a Japanese uh, martial art expert, and he was in Gothenburg uh, doing a, a seminar there or a course that I went to. And in the evening, he was uh, being attacked by a, a group of, uh, of uh, young kids that wanted to mug him. And there, there were some friends that saw him. And the only thing he did, I think there were about six against him, and he more or less just stood there and it ended with them, the other ones leaving. He was just an absolute perfect balance. Even whatever they did, he was just there. And uh, 
sometimes I feel that all of this practice and, and so is for the ultimate uh, result of not using it. Yeah, and that that's like Aikido, uh, that martial art. That's where uh, you use your own opponent's energy. You don't put much of your own energy into it. You let them put the energy in, and then all you do is 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 guide the opponent's energy. And you can guide it away from him or guide him to hurt himself. And that's called it like the gentle martial art, um, where you don't put much energy into it. So the martial arts, in my opinion, uh, every operative, um, you know, in, in in Britain with the SAS, the regular troops, Australia, U.S., Russia, they all take basic hand-to-hand. And then uh, if they go to AIT training, like here, that's advanced infantry training, it's the next step up uh, for the Army guys. And that's a, they have more uh, hand-to-hand combat and stuff. And then like the Navy SEALs and the Delta guys, Delta Force, they all take more, even more and more of that. And so the martial arts training to me is, is a key component um, because there's times when you run out of ammunition places between resupplies. There's times when uh, your, your weapon may malfunction. It may be cold and it won't shoot or whatever. And so you learn not to rely just on the guns, and you use knives, and you use your own uh, natural skills. So um, a lot of soldiers don't have time, you know, to train for 20 years in that, but some people do. And uh, the guys that are at the higher higher level of those arts generally have developed that sixth sense. And they also know they can almost feel when someone's coming after them. They just have a a feeling when someone is fixing to attack them, like they can almost block it before it ever happens. And so it's that higher level thing um, that really works in the black ops. Cody, can you tell you can you tell us a little bit about working as a bodyguard? What are you looking for when you said that a bodyguard can spot an assassin and an assassin can be a perfect yeah. bodyguard. What would what would be the signs that a bodyguard is looking for? Well, let's say, for instance, you're bodyguarding some famous rock musician or some some guy. Um, you you look for choke points, points that are from wherever they're going to exit the stage, and then they're going to get in their limousine or whatever they're doing. And you look at sniper positions around those choke points. Those are the points where they're most vulnerable. Um, and so you first look at those. Um, you make sure that whatever the uh, the person that your bodyguard, you watch all their food, you watch all, everything they drink and eat, you keep the uh, everything locked up so that and security on them so that if they get thirsty and they want to drink some water. You must be sure that water hasn't been poisoned or tainted in any way. And so you have to watch all those things. Um, you have to watch what they're doing, uh, where they're going. You have to watch the crowd around them. Um, you also check all the possible sniper positions where they would have a clear shot to the choke, choke point. So when they're being moved, you cover all the exits and entrances. You always have a uh, secondary or tertiary uh, escape scheme 
in case there's someone that pulls out a machine gun or there's uh, someone going to detonate a bomb. Um, you have various ways to protect them uh, and get them out to safety in an alternate fashion. So you're always looking for entrances and exits. That's also the same way assassination teams will come in and out. So all those choke points are covered. Um, if there's too many of them, you can post guards at them or lock them up or, you know, like the Secret Service does here uh, when a president's making a speech, they weld all the uh, manhole covers in the streets shut so that uh, there's no choke point entrance and exits to the uh, tunnel systems. And then they post people all along the flat roofs and the windows, and they make sure, uh, you know, that that the number of sniper positions are limited. And um, <clears throat> then you have a comm set up where you can call in help if uh, something happens. The object is to guard the principal and make sure that they don't get uh, hit. And therefore, you would wear, you know, uh, bulletproof vests and so forth or have extra team members where if the principal comes out and uh, shooting begins or something, that you can surround him and protect him with your bulletproof vest. And um, so it's a, it's a lot of high-level observation. And if you use the right strategy and tactics and you tell them, you know, we want to take this limousine and put him on stage right here at this door, and you go, no, there's too many choke points here. There's too, uh, we're not going to do this. This is a security risk, security nightmare. Instead, we want to use the underground interest, and we're going to bring him up through the basement on the elevator. So by using strategy and tactics, you can protect the target and minimize the choke points so that no one can get to him in the first place. And that's what a good bodyguard does. It's not just standing in front of him to take a bullet. It's setting up the whole situation strategically and tactically to minimize any type of assassination attempt. So as a bodyguard, if, you, if you've got a big crowd in front of you, I mean, that must be an absolute nightmare. But w what signs are you looking for in the crowd well, that's hard to say, you know, in a in a a crowd of like a concert goers, you know, everyone's drunk and on drugs and burnt, and holding their lighters up and dancing and everything. Uh, what you can do though is look for intent. Uh, if someone's going to make an assassination attempt, say on a rock star, for instance, um, the people in the crowd that's going to do it, they're generally very focused and they got a serious look on their face and they're not partying and dancing and having fun most people that want to have fun they just let go and they're all free and dancing and enjoying the music and you can see that in them but if someone's there and they're waiting for a chance and waiting to pounce uh, they generally have a different demeanor and those people stand out in crowds unless they're trained agents um, so you look for things like that and then you cut off the avenues of their approach to your to your principal or uh, and and so that's what you're looking for. Um, you can't see it all, and you, you can't know it all, but you can certainly reduce the chances and the probabilities of anyone getting to your your uh, principal because if someone gets to your principal, then you don't get paid. We're back to the money, money, money. Well, that's why would you do it? Why would yeah. you risk yourself uh, from getting shot by snipers or blown up by uh, Muslim Paris or whatever. That's why I didn't take those jobs in Saudi Arabia over there, because uh, uh, 
for fifty thousand a month, that's not near enough money for the risk that was indigenous to that area. Um, that, that that place over there is very dangerous. There's a, there's Shiite groups, there's Sunni groups, there's intelligence agencies, the Mossad. The uh, there is so much violence and hatred. It's just well, there's bombings and and stuff all over all the time over there. It's just a mess. But did you feel proud as well when you were doing these kind of jobs? Well, when I do bodyguard work uh, and you actually afford an attempt or something, yeah, that's what you get paid for. Most times when you get hired to do that, nothing happens. If you set the circumstances up and the choke points up correctly, that makes your job that much easier and you never get shot at. You never have to face any of that. You simply eliminate all the avenues of approach, if possible, of any potential uh, threats, and then that makes the, the job on the other end uh, that much easier. Yeah. So, Cody, I think uh, we've come to the end of, uh, of this hour. Would you please give out uh, your details, how people can get in touch with you, get your book, in the name of your book, and, and so on? Yeah. Um, that new book is Choosing the Light, Dark Secrets of the Oklahoma City Bombing. There's a lot of other stories in there, too, besides that. Right right now, um, the way to get the book is contact my email. This is going to change soon, but I'll just give the email out. It's C-O-D-Y-G-O-L-D-E-N. E-L-K at yahoo.com. That's Cody Golden Elk at yahoo.com. That's my Indian name, so uh, that's what we use. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, the whole thing with bodyguarding uh, and assassinations, um, they're both really one and the same. They're just, it's application of force. One is used for protection in the case of bodyguarding, and one is used uh, for assault. Uh, one is the use of force, the assassination, and then the bodyguarding is blocking the use of force. And so it's like light. You know, light is light, and darkness is the absence of it. And so they're really the same thing. It's all light. It's just in the assassination world, there is no light. It's darkness. And then in the bodyguard world, there's light and it's protection. Protection is trying to help people and keep them alive. Assassination is trying to hurt people and get them dead. But they both meet in the middle. And the true warrior can transcend either one of those and use his skills as a warrior in either way. He knows how to kill, both kill people, and he knows how to heal people and help people and keep them alive. And all, all that matters in this is his intent. If he puts his intent to evil and darkness, then he can be a great assassin. If he puts his intent to protection and light and healing, he can be a great bodyguard and a helper. So it's all to the intent of the warrior and which path he chooses spiritually between the light and the dark. 
And our intention with this series of uh, interviews is truly the light. And this is why I feel very honored to be here with you, Cody. And thank you so, so much for sharing this type of information. It is uh, very hard to get hold of otherwise than from the inside. So I thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thank you, Ole. To listen to this full interview, just go to lightonconspiracies.com and subscribe. Give yourself the gift of truth and awareness while supporting Ole's hard efforts to get it out there. Coup d'etat in slow motion. Connecting the dots between the assassinations of Swedish Prime Minister Olaf Palme, JFK, Robert Kennedy, and John Lennon. Now available on Amazon and lightonconspiracies.com. Coup d'etat in slow motion. May the entire universe be filled with peace and joy, love and light. May everyone, and especially the ones who heard us, be filled with peace and joy, love and light. Victory to that light. We're rolling. Mm.